The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be going back in time a bit. Uh, nostalgia is... Nostalgia is getting, becoming ever more appealing to us that we, as we live in times that uh, aren't quite um, as safe and, and uh, carefree as once upon a time, um, although obviously there were some certain periods in time that weren't as carefree either. But in general, you know, it's not, uh, not the time of Woodstock, for example. Well, today we're going to be going back to 1969, the uh, year of Woodstock, um, we're going to be talking to my first guest, um, Elliot Tiber, who just wrote, just came out with a new book um, called After Woodstock. And um, the, After Woodstock, the true story of a Belgian movie, an Israeli wedding, and a Manhattan breakdown. But before After Woodstock, <laughs> we have uh, the prequel that was called uh, Palm Palm Trees on the Hudson, A True Story of the Mob, Judy Garland, and Interior Decorating. And then, of course, we have Taking Woodstock, which was not only a um, uh, best-selling book, but was also a movie in 2009 uh, by Ang Lee. And um, we're going to be contrasting Elliot Tiber's uh, story. Both of these men, both of the guests on my show today, uh, have been present at Iconic Times, 1969, Woodstock for Elliot. And for my next guest, Danny Lateris, uh, in 1969, he was in Vietnam. Very contrasting events. And men who then went on very differing paths. So, Elliot, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, you, uh, we're going to, first, of course, I want you to tell us about how you saved Woodstock. We would not be talking about Woodstock today, nor would anybody else <laughs> over the years, uh, had it not been for your having saved it. And um, before that, of course, um, you, well, be- before, before that, um, you were a gay, uh, growing up gay in Brooklyn in the 1950s and 60s when it was not um, as accepted as it is today, uh, particularly by your parents. And, um, and then, of course, um, the the new book um, after Woodstock, in which you have saved certain aspects of your life for us today. Uh, each of these were memoirs, true stories. And um, why don't we start, of course, with um, taking Woodstock and tell us about how you saved who you how you saved it. 
Well, Mike Lang, the original producer of Woodstock, um, his permits were canceled in Woodstock, and he tried to get it in Wallkill, New York, uh, <clears throat> and they had a full-page ad from the town showing the town mayor with his rifle aimed at dykes and saying that they didn't want dirty dykes on their streets, whatever that mm. means. Mm. Um, the dykes I know are not dirty. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I saw this in the paper, and I had the Yelmonico Motel in White Lake, New York, um, in Bethel, uh, with my parents for 10 years, and we were going broke. The bank was going to take it over. And every year for 10 years, I was president of the Chamber of Commerce, because no one else wanted it, and I issued myself a permit for a music festival on my Underwood typewriter every year for 10 years. So I called Mike Lang and I said, I have a permit for a music festival, and I have 18 acres of ground. Why don't you come here and do it? He asked how to get there where we were, and he came with a helicopter within 20 minutes, landing on my lawn and with his lawyer, and let's see the permits. I showed him the permit. The lawyer said, yes, it's a legal permit. And I showed him the grounds, which was really mostly swamp. So he was ready to leave, and I said, wait a minute, my my milkman, Max Jaska, loves music, and he's got 800 acres there, nothing but cows, and the cows could go in the woods for all I care. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we went to the farm, and of course there was a natural amphitheater, a beautiful site, as everyone now knows. And they made a deal with Max Jaska. They um, uh, offered 50000 It came up to a couple of 100000 which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And anyway, <laughs> and for me, it was a chance to rent out the rooms in my motel. I had 72 rooms without running water, without showers, falling down. And he had his whole staff of thousands of people. So, of course, he took over the entire motel and our bar. And my mother was delighted. She was so money-hungry. And he came there to the motel and um, with, made a phone call. Within 20 minutes, limousines started to arrive and trucks with equipment and all of that in, on our place. He opened up um, a shopping bag, and he took out cash, and he um, um, paid us. Uh, we wanted the, the, for the rooms, um, so he paid us cash. It was $8 a night when you could get it, and we couldn't get it. Howard Johnson's got eight dollars a night nearby, huh. but we got nothing. Anyway, so he said, "I'll pay you um, seven hundred fifty dollars a room a night." Oh wow! Could have blown. It blew our mind. So he <laughs> took out cash and he paid it for fifty thousand and another fifty. And mother stuffed it into a mattress to hide it because she was terrified. <laughs> and they filled up our place. And. Um, he said, why don't you go on the radio and invite people to come to the festival? They sold around 200,000 tickets wow. um, so far. So I got on the radio, and I announced, um, I was thinking it was NBC, and I announced um, about the Woodstock Festival is not canceled anymore, and it's in White Lake, New York, on Route 17B, and come on out. Oh, and well. I was so excited, and I said, and if you don't have tickets, it doesn't matter. It's a free concert. <laughs> Mike Lang's eyes almost went out of his head. Um, but I don't know why I said it, but I said it. Well, within a few hours, the highway started to back up to New York City, 90 miles. Governor Rockefeller got on and said, please don't go through uh, the, the throughway because it's now a parking lot. And... Um, Overnight, we had a million and a half people, 500,000 on the farm, and the rest couldn't get to it. So they flooded the towns nearby, and 
and camped out and all of that, in tents and all of that stuff. And everybody was stoned and everybody was drinking and having sex everywhere. So it was really about, and, and the music was playing. So it was, it was a festival of music and sex and drugs, not hard <laughs> drugs. It, no meth, crystal meth or anything like that. It was strictly no heroin. It was strictly uh, marijuana. And it was mm-hmm. a wonderful crowd. There were no fights. There were no killings. And a ma- crowd of that size, today there's violence uh. everywhere, as you know. Uh. And no guns, no knives, none of that. And um, so suddenly we had a music festival. Music started playing. I couldn't leave my place because it was the headquarters and all these people there. I had 18,000 in my place, which had room for maybe 200. Oh, wow. And there was the hammocks in the uh, pine trees. I had to call and buy some hammocks for people to sleep in. And um, the first uh, singer was Richie Havens. And um, uh, I never heard of him. never heard of most of the people. They became famous, of course, at Woodstock. Mm. And Richie Havens started uh, to uh, sing him before the song. And... Um, the lake there is Five Mile Lake, so it acted like a sounding board, and it sounded like Richie was in my living room. Mm. Uh, that's how clear the songs were, because I never got to the festival itself. I was too busy huh. on the grounds and all of that. I could only hear it. And um, um, I got there afterwards. I went at 5 in the morning um, with a policeman on a motorcycle, one of the uh, state troopers who I was friendly with, uh, to see what was going on, and it was incredible to see a, a mass of humanity like that in the stages and the distance and people um, in tents and eating and smoking and drinking. It was just wonderful. So if not for me, there would never have been a Woodstock Festival, which has put me on the world map. Yes. Now, before Woodstock, you were an interior decorator. Mm-hmm. In New yes, York. I was a, a, a professional in interior de- decorator in Manhattan and doing some fine Fifth Avenue homes. And I decorated a nightclub, um, which was owned by the Jewish Mafia, which I didn't know existed. And I was so naive about all of that stuff. And he said he's going to have the, um, the owner. His birthday was there. And he wanted to have a party on the USS Peter Stuyvesant, the Staten Island Ferry in uh, New York Harbor. He was going to have a birthday party, and Judy Garland was going to come. Well, that just did it for me. Judy Garland was my favorite. I saw Wizard of Oz every day for years. <laughs> uh, when I was 10, I first saw Wizard of Oz and fell in love uh-huh. with her. And um, so we de- decorated the boat um, uh, with a lot of palm trees. Anyway, and then there were about 500 people on the boat, meant for about 200. Judy's limo arrived at the dock, and everyone went to the side, and the boat almost sank, tipped over. <laughs> and she came on board, and since I was the host, I, she, I was put in charge of her, which was amazing to me. It was my own movie. And I took her to um, um, a cabin for herself to calm down and all of that, and we got a little friendly, and we're hugging and talking and all of that, and I told her I was gay and how hard it was and all of that, and she gave me a hug, and so she said, listen, you have to be yourself. doesn't matter what other people say or think about you. You have to feel for, have self-respect and feel for yourself. She gave me that advice at the time, which uh-huh. stayed with me. And um, anyway, the party went on and all of that, and everybody got drunk, and we were passing the Statue of Liberty in the Hudson River, and they decided to throw my rented palm trees into the <laughs> river. And that's where 100 palm trees, Hudson does not have palm trees. It's not like I'm in Miami now where we have palm trees. 
And so the palm trees were all floating in and would cost me $10,000 to rent them. <laughs> and when I asked Harvey to, uh, he was going to pay that, he sent one of his henchmen with a gun and a piece of blank paper. He said, sign this receipt for 10000 I said, where's the 10000 It was 3 in the morning. He said, sign the receipt. And he showed me a gun. So that was that. Oh, and, wow. Um, that was why I had the, the story about the uh, palm trees on the Hudson. Well, now, um, to go back even further, um, when you, I read that you, um, your mother originally wanted you to be a rabbi, is that right? Yes, um, she sent me to the yeshiva of Flatbush, which is in Brooklyn, to become a rabbi as a little kid. And when I was, and that's nothing at all I wanted, I felt there was, since I was 10, there was no God. <laughs> Excuse me. And so um, I was valedictorian. I got on the stage to make a speech. My parents were there and 2,500 other people in the audience, all listening. And I opened the Holy Ark, the, um, which holds the Torah, which you're not supposed to touch unless you're a rabbi. And I opened it up, and I showed the Torah, and I said, there is, in Hebrew, fluent Hebrew, in Yiddish, and, and in English. I didn't know French then. Um, anyway, I said, there is no God. Well, the oh my God, was, your... <laughs> was hysterical. And the rabbi Braverman of the school, or a different rabbi, Pincus, um, came there with a ruler. He used to hit you with a ruler in those days when you're a bad boy, uh, or even a bad girl. And they came there to pull me off, and I turned around and I said in the microphone, Rabbi Pincus, what are you so irate about? Why don't you tell him what you did to me when I was 10 years old in the back room behind the class where he molested me? And I didn't know what it was he was doing. He sat me on his lap. I didn't know what was going on. And um, so it went over very well, that graduation exercise. My oh, my God. So what me, happened? My parents pulled me out of there, and um, my mother was very religious and um, right-wing, not a Republican, but right-wing. My father was very pleasant and calm, and he just smiled at the whole thing. Mother was hysterical, how I ruined her name, and how will I get into Yeshiva High School to become the rabbi by doing this? That was her main concern, because she enrolled me in very uh -huh. expensive high school. And <clears throat> so when it came time to go to the high school, instead of going to Yeshiva, I decided to go to Midwood, which was nearby in Flatbush, a, a normal high school, and uh, study art. That's what I wanted to do. I was always drawing and painting. Uh -huh. And so I went there. After three weeks, the Yeshiva called mother and said, your son's not been in class ever. And so she found out and cursed me. And uh, Oh, you mean you didn't tell them that you weren't going to? No. <laughs> no, I so, okay. so there's, the, there's I, kind of a theme, and we haven't even gotten to after Woodstock yet. Um, but there's a, kind of a theme already clear about how you kind of have chutzpah, how you have, you know, how, because I also was reading about how you told um, the man who was producing Woodstock that you've done uh, music festivals there before, but you didn't tell him that there were only three people who came to each of these festivals. So no, he was just interested that I had the music festivals, and they assumed there was a lot of people. That's what they used to. <laughs> I didn't have to spell out all the details. I was right. So, okay, where because this is like a, a lesson for people. Where do you think? Where do you think that came from? Um, you know, to be all the things that you just talked about so far. You know, most people wouldn't dare to do any of these things. So where did that come from? You know, obviously it came from things in your childhood before, 
uh, before 10 in any case. So where did that come from? Like a rebelliousness because, because of your past? Well, I was always a free, when I was a kid, I was a free thinker, and I was studying art. I was drawing and painting all the time, and I wrote a little newspaper for the neighborhood that I typed up with five copies and sold them for a penny. Anyway, um, I was a free thinker, and um, I was going to museums. I was not going to baseball games. I went to museums my time off, and I was reading a lot and film, watching movies all the time. And so <clears throat> they helped form my direction, seeing free thinkers in movies and people... <laughs> Excuse me, doing uh-huh. things. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't be well, the cigarettes well, I'm smoking, right? <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about after Woodstock. Um, the true story of a Belgian movie, an Israeli wedding, and a Manhattan breakdown. So, a Belgian movie, I know that that had to do with your, actually, I wanted to, t- with your meeting um, a man in, in Manhattan who was Belgian, and you, you, you hopped on a plane one day and joined him there and then uh, created a lot of, um, wrote in a, a book, Oat Rue um, High Street. Rue Oat High Street. Right. Rue Oat. Rue Oat, yes, Oat right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so on, did a lot of creative things. And um, I, I must tell you that I went to medical school in Belgium. Oh, really? um, I went to the University of Louvain, so I... Aha, uh-huh, wonderful. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, it was a wonderful, and then I lived in Paris, and so there's nothing like all that. Um, yes. so, <laughs> so tell us about, you know, because that, now we're getting up to, um, well, the Belgian movie is the movie that you, that you wrote um, from the book, um, and... And then the Israeli's wedding is your mother who got remarried after your father mm-hmm. died. Um, and then Manhattan Break, well, we'll save that for the end. Tell us about what happened with, uh, you came back to New York um, with um, your Andre. partner. And, mm-hmm. um, and you had some uh, unfortunate, uh, and then he became sick. So tell us about some of the heartbreak. Well, um we, when I went to Belgium there, I didn't know what to do with myself, and I went to, he was doing TV shows, he was directing in theater, and I went to the head of the TV variety department, that's Chutzpah, I just went into yeah. his office and spoke English, I said, anyone speak English here? So he said, well, I'm the uh, director here, I speak English. And I said, I would like to do comedy on television. And have you done that before? I said, oh, yes, yes, in New <laughs> York. I said, do you like I Love Lucy? That was the big show showing me. He said, yes. He thought I, his English wasn't so good. He thought I, that I wrote I Love Lucy. I never <laughs> said that. Anyway, and they hired me immediately. And I came up with uh, uh, a, a show called I called SketchUp because I knew no friends. So I knew they knew the word ketchup. And sketch they knew, so uh-huh. it was a series of comedy sketches, and it was uh, about a fat guy with curly hair, a hippie who did Woodstock. I was writing about myself, and I wrote all of that down. And he said, "Where are we going to find an actor to do all that?" I raised my hand. I said, "Me, me, me. Have you acted before?" "Yes, I've been on Broadway <laughs> for years and years." They don't check it out. <clears throat> and then, um, so I did this show, and it won the Best of the Year award. And it was sent to a television festival in Montreux, Switzerland, and it came in second. The person, the person who won first, who I learned to hate right away, was an unknown mm-hmm. singer in London, Julie Andrews. Never oh, heard well. of her. Yeah. And then the second year, I won again uh, second place, and they 
people that came in first from London was Monty Python. Who knew what that was or who they were? Nobody. And so I hated those two. But uh, the fact that my show got that far was amazing to me. And uh, uh, I wrote this book called The Wealth High Street, the name of a, a major shopping street. And like the uh, Garment District, 7th Avenue, Manhattan, was all Jewish shops on that street. Well, anyway, before the war. And uh, I'm, I saw there was a mad woman screaming under my window in the streets in Flemish and in French, that country's bilingual. I didn't understand a word, but I started to invent a story about an American artist who meets a mad woman and tries to help uh-huh. her. And um, well, um, I'm getting worried about us running out of time. So just oh, I'm sorry. Move, we could talk for hours. Um, could you bring us a little bit more to the present, back to New York? Oh yeah. Well, I went back to New York with Andre. We moved back to New York. We were doing uh, theater plays, and. Um, and uh, films, and Andre was a very well-known, became very famous off-Broadway director. He won the Obie Drama Award there and uh, uh, taught at Yale. And uh, I was with him with every step of the way, and then, unfortunately, he got uh, very ill. Um, After we were together 27 years, he became very ill, and uh, it was hopeless, apparently, they told me, and he passed away, and so... Uh, that was just devastating to me, absolutely devastating. And at his memorial, you apparently um, um, had a tirade, went into a tirade um, against all the people who had not um, given, who had disappointed Andre career-wise. Well, a lot of few productions he did went to Broadway without him. They got other directors to take his work exactly. And I was furious. Anyway, 500 people showed up at Memorial for Andre. Wow. And uh, everybody spoke. They said, would you like to speak? I said, I'd like to go and last. And I listened to all of these people. And I got up there. And I said, it was wonderful that they all came. And I pointed at each one that stole his work and went to Broadway. I said, you took the work of this genius, this creative genius, a good man, never did anybody harm, and cheat him out of it. And he became very ill because of it. So you huh. could all go fuck yourselves. Huh. And that was my wonderful speech to them. They were in shock, total shock. I didn't care. Wow. And do you think that that affected your career after that? Oh, yes, I signed a death warrant for any work in New York for me. Um, but it didn't matter. I had money from Woodstock to live off of, and I decided I was going to go around the world. And because uh, Andre had said to me one of his last words, he said, yeah, I want you to take this money. He, he got a lot of money over the years he saved. He never spent a dime. And I didn't know about that, and I didn't know he left it all for me. Huh. And he said, I want you to go around the world and have a good time, please. And I remember that. After his funeral, and that's exactly what I did. I started huh. traveling. I went to Bangkok. I went to Tokyo. Went to London. I went everywhere. It was just awesome, amazing. And so it was the Manhattan breakdown. Is that a reference to this, um, to your breakdown yes, with, in a sense at his Andre. memorial? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I guess um, I guess it, it continues the same th- theme of chutzpah. You know, um, being a free thinker, saying <laughs> saying what you want, essentially taking chances. Um, uh, you know, find like a, a Forrest Gump. You know, you've, so far you've you've been turning your life into a kind of Forrest Gump movie. 
I guess so. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it's it's really a good way of looking at it. And um, and I enjoy writing. I'm always writing. I'm working on my new book, which is called Miami Bitches. I hate <laughs> Miami, so it's about Miami bitches. I don't know if they'll publish it, but um, <laughs> you mean the women that you've been right, or guys or what? What people in Miami no, in general that you've been a running bitch into? To me. I, I do the play of Miami Beach, Miami Bitch, but it's uh-huh. um, uh, I bitch people. I walk around with my dog five times a day, and people all know who I am uh, here at this point. I'm here three or four years, and um, I tell people what to wear, what to do, how to think, and they take me seriously. I mean, I don't know about them or what they're wearing. I don't care what they're wearing, but they take me seriously, and... Um, they run out. It's good for sales. They run out and buy my books. <laughs> oh, well, and, that's, um, well, that's fabulous. Well, talking about that, let's make sure that we get that in here. Um, where people after can Woodstock, buy all it's of your on books. Amazon.com, and so is Taking Woodstock. The book and the film is on Amazon.com, and Palm Trees is also there. Okay, and after Woodstock, which is the current one, and yes. um, and in in not too long, um, Miami bitches. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's really um, delightful to chat with you. I hope that you have been even in this brief chat. I hope that your um, chutzpah has nerve. Your has has impressed upon people who are out there, you know, having a dream of their own. Um, wanting to be in iconic moments um, and really being too scared to say, well, I oh, well, yeah, people, I, um, I did that or I can do that. I get students uh, that I meet here or young people or some people who would like to write a book and they don't know what to do. And I dispense advice to them and I tell them just sit down and write. Don't worry about editing or about how it looks or sounds. Just write what you feel. So I feel good that I encourage people for um, free expression. And um, I used to teach at, uh, at Hunter College in New York School of uh, mm-hmm. the New School. And uh, so I know what teaching is. I was always um, teaching comedy and um, um, made me feel good to see the students uh, take some of them with very miserable lives and unhappy events and to turn it into comedy, which is what I did because yes. I had a terrible childhood with my mother. And I yes. turned it all into comedy. Yes. Well, let me again um, tell people about the the names of the books: Taking Woodstock, Palm Palm Trees on the Hudson, After Woodstock, uh, the movie Taking Woodstock as well, from of course Amazon or bookstores you can order it from, or the publisher um, Square One Publishers dot com. Square One Publishers dot com. Well, Elliot, it's a pleasure to chat with you, and I admire. Um, all that you've done, and I hope that we have inspired uh, my listeners to go out there and have some chutzpah of their own, whether they're Jewish or not. <laughs> so my advice you. to your listeners is, is whatever you want to do, just do it. Just go and do it, because no one else is going to be able to do it for you with your voice. And um, uh, when people understand what that means, they're able to accomplish all kinds of things, doctors, lawyers, writers, whatever. Yes, absolutely. People get so stuck when they think they need approval or they need the okay from um, other people waiting for the okay and, and just stuck and their life goes by and none of this happens. 
You hit it right on the head. Absolutely, exactly what it is. See, I get by on my good looks, but I can't expect everyone to get by. <laughs> I'm well, glad it's not TV. You can't see me. I'm 80 <laughs> years old now. Well, hey, I have a picture of you on the website oh. of voiceamerica.com, so check it out. <laughs> and, and my, dog Woody. When it, my when, dog, Woody. In a couple of days, this show, we're going out live now, but in a couple of days, this will be up on the Voice America.com website with your picture. and Well, actually, no, it's already up there, come to think of it. It's already up there, so you can check it out. Uh, the oh, picture, I will. The, Thank you. May I send it out to people? Sure, absolutely. The description and the, and the, of the show and the pictures are up there, and then the show itself will be up there in 24 hours or so. Oh, thank so thank you. you That's again. Very nice thank, of you. And very thank, nice you, you. thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Stay with me. We'll be right back with my next guest. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about nostalgia, um, the Woodstock, and the Vietnam War heroes of these iconic periods, and where are they now? Um, so my next guest is, um, is a hero <laughs> of uh, the Vietnam War. We're going to be kind of comparing and contrasting that to Woodstock. In fact, actually, um, apparently there are, there are bumper stickers and, um, I guess, posters, which I hadn't seen before, but um, in 1960, maybe you have. My next guest is D.S. or Danny Literis, and um, he is an author of 12 books, uh, including his latest one called Viet Man, M-A-N, uh, a novel, but it's based, it's very much autobiographical. Um, Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm, um, I'm comparing, you know, my, my, 
first guest um, was actually a man who saved Woodstock. And, um, you know, so in 1969, he was <laughs> busy um, working on that. And in 1969, you were busy <laughs> um, serving in Vietnam. And I just actually recently came upon this saying. Um, uh, maybe you may have seen this. In 1969, this is the only Woodstock I remember, and it's a it's a picture of a gun. Have you ever seen that? Uh, no, I have not actually. I I really haven't. And apparently, they make bumper stickers and I probably posters um, of this. So it does kind of highlight, um, you know, all of the things that were, you know, from one extreme to the other, all the things that were going on in our world at that time. What, when you were, in 1969, um, what was your awareness of Woodstock? Well, you know, uh, I was literally on a patrol. I was uh, during Woodstock. Uh, at the time, I did not know that, but I was with the 1st Recon Marines, 1st Marine Division, operating uh, near the DMZ most of the time in the I-Corps area. I was a hospital corpsman uh, for the Marine Corps, a medical guy. And um, I, I looked around, you know, with, to where I was. I, you know, August 15th through 18th was uh, Woodstock, and I realized that I was on patrol from August 14th through 17th. So it was really kind of interesting. And, you know, I when I was there, you have to remember, uh, we got the culture in, in an indirect manner. You know, America was that faraway place. We were in this place called Vietnam. Uh, and at the time, you have to remember, the communication was far more primitive than it is today. There weren't any cell phones or smartphones or uh -huh. computers or scanners or Skype or any of that. <laughs> we basically had the old occasional letter and the very old occasional magazine or newspaper. And our only other media outlet was the Armed Forces Radio on the radio. Mm. So, uh, you know, occasionally we'll get somebody, hey, guys, I got, you know, a letter from home from somebody, friend, girlfriend, parent. There was this kind of interesting uh, rock thing going on in New York. And, uh, and it was kind of like, wow, that sounds cool. And you have to remember, too, in, in Vietnam, the culture and the music was the same. We were listening to The Doors and Iron Butterfly and Janis Joplin and, and all the rest. Young guys coming from America, having gone to high school, and we were just interested in knowing what was going on back home whenever. And we were just caught up in the war, like everybody else. Instead of us being on the barricades and on the campuses, we were in the war itself, having, you know, many of us being drafted or volunteering or, you know, combinations thereof. So, uh, you know, Woodstock was this very interesting thing that was going on. And I saw the Woodstock movie about a month after I got back from the war. Mm. And I found it delightful. And it was really kind of cool, actually. So it was a positive thing for us. Uh, that that's that's what you take away from, and uh, and what makes what makes the connection so so right is that in Vietnam is a positive book about the war. <laughs> Ironic, it's a combat war book, but you know it's 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 a book that I wanted Vietnam veterans to feel proud of. I wanted 
people who never went to war and who will never go to war to kind of understand what it was about. And I wanted to tell not only a good story, but I wanted it to be accessible to people. Uh, less is more in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, it, it was also kind of like my Mount Everest. You know, I had to write this book, but I knew that someday that I would. And, of course, well, I sought literary achievement on top of that. So, you know, there's this cultural connection uh, between what was going on in America and what was going on in Vietnam. It had to be, because we were America in Vietnam. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know. Well, let me go back before Vietnam um, mm-hmm. and because and ask you what... Um, you you joined the military right after high school. Yes. And that was you were in Alabama. No, no, I was um, I was I was born in New York City. I was born in the Bronx. Grew up in the Bronx until I was ten, and then we moved to Miami, Florida. I uh, went to high school and junior high school in Miami, so I grew up in my adolescent years in Miami, and. Uh, graduated, I was still 17, but I turned 18 in July, and, uh, and then I joined up shortly thereafter. And I, uh, wanted to be, uh, uh, in, in the medical community. So I joined the Navy to be a corpsman. And then I didn't know at the time that that was a fast track into the Marine Corps and to Vietnam, because oh. the Marines needed corpsmen and the Navy supplied all the medical facilities and personnel to the Marine Corps. Huh. I didn't know that at the time, so and when I got to boot camp, I found that out, which <laughs> was okay. You know, it was my destiny. I, okay, I but what it. was going through your mind before you were you were you drafted or did you volunteer? I volunteered. I was going to be drafted. I knew that everybody was being drafted back then, but I I decided to go, and um. I, I didn't have any problems with, with that. I, I, I wanted to go, and um, not knowing that I would end up going to Vietnam, nobody knew that, uh, but that's what happened. I, I, I was in the Navy for a short time that transferred me into the Marine Corps. I uh, spent about a year and a half in the Marine Corps or so when finally I got orders suddenly to Vietnam, which was a, a surprise. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I said, "Okay, looks like I'm going." <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so I didn't. You know, I was pretty passive in all of that. I I kind of went along with the events, the vortex of my time, and uh, I was perfectly fine with that. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. So you know, I got over there. Um, I had been in an artillery unit for that period of time prior to Vietnam, and I thought that's what I would be doing uh, when I got there, and then I found that I was going to the crunch, and to me, that was, I understood that was a really bad place for corpsmen to go, so somebody asked for five corpsmen volunteers to the recon Marine Corps, uh, and I volunteered. Uh-huh. And, and it was a good decision. I mean, were you, very... do you think it was because, like, as you were growing up, were you always feeling very patriotic? Um, I mean, where, what, where did, because, okay, because nowadays, without a draft, um, 
you know, we don't really, I mean, a lot of young men grow up not really thinking about um, signing up, volunteering. Um, and I, I think that there's a different mentality in today's uh, high school graduates than when you um, were graduated from high school. Well, what do you think about that? And do you talk about this in Vietnam? Well, you know, I, I really don't know about that. I, I think that uh, uh, we have a, a pretty large and dedicated and devoted professional military today, um, and that people are going in. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a military at all. Yes, all but I mean, it army. certainly isn't the same as when everybody, like you were saying at the beginning, you know, everybody was was um, potentially going to be drafted. Um, sure, and... that, that's that's what the draft does. You know, it it it, it puts it front and center of everybody's mind. Right. And uh, you know, I I was a young guy who didn't want to go to college right away, and I figured the military was one way to get out there and uh, uh, see the world a little bit, uh, uh-huh. and, and 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 go into that place called adventure, which young men oftentimes do. Yeah, uh, the, the war was raging, but you know um, there was nothing I could do about that. And uh, going into the Navy, I figured, well, uh, that was one way to serve, and uh, and, and it ended up being, you know, Vietnam, uh, you know, uh, front and center. Um, and you know, so, I, it really yeah. wasn't that dramatic. You know, uh-huh. you know, it just wasn't that dramatic. I I just sort of flowed with it. I think a lot of people did the same. Um, you know, most uh, guys who went over there just sort of went with it, except for those, of course, who were really angry about it. I didn't, I didn't run into too many of those uh, because, you know, most of the Marine Corps was pretty much volunteer, and all of Recon was volunteer. So it was, it was a completely uh-huh. different world and a very professional world. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, so what made you? So, so how did how? What was your return? Um, to civilian life like? How were you greeted? How were things... Uh, what did you find when you came back? Well, that's interesting because um, well, I came back alone and pretty much without any fanfare, uh, pretty much nobody noticed. Uh, I came home, I went, and I, I went to my parents' house in Miami and, you know, of course, I had a loving family, and I was greeted uh, lovingly when I got home that night. And um, that's as undramatic as can be. Now, I, I decided after three years in the overseas or in the military, I wanted to go to college. I enrolled at Florida State University very shortly thereafter. And I pretty much didn't talk about the war for, for many years. And even though there were protests going on on campus and all of that, I pretty much ignored that. I decided that I already had done my thing, that I, was an, I had enough, and I was, you know, it was time for me to go to college and do what I wanted to do. So I, I majored in the theater. I got a BA in the theater, and I got an MFA in theater and playwriting and directing. And I really immersed myself in the arts and enjoyed all that that had to offer for me. Uh, quite frankly, uh, many of the people that I knew for years and years did not even know I had been to Vietnam until mm. my first book came out back in 1990, 91, with, you know, Warrior's Romance. And it was a book of haiku, poetry, and photographs of Vietnam. 
huh. uh, first recon. And it's then that many people discovered, wow, Danny, you were in Vietnam? I said, wow, we didn't even know that. And I said, well, yeah, I was, you know, and and ever since then I've been talking about it. <laughs> so why I, I, did it take you until now to um, to write this book, Vietnam? Oh, this was the Mount Everest. I've, I've uh, been studying how to get at this thing called the Vietnam War in the most truthful and simplest and most accessible way. And I approached it uh, tangentially through um, Inner Warriors Romance, the haiku uh, poetry photograph book. I also have published uh, uh, another book dealing with the counterculture in the Vietnam War, uh, as seen through the eyes of a returning war veteran, and the title of that book was 613 West Jefferson, which uh, took place um, in, uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. So um, I also wrote a short story and a play and several other um, works that were related to the subject. And essentially what I was trying to do is discover how to get at this combat war book most in the most honest way. Um, I wrote this book initially about 12, 13 years ago came back to it a couple of years ago, and I realized that, that there was just a very good outline that it needed serious rewrites. And I finally cracked the code. I finally knew that I had written the book that I had hoped to write. And uh, I, this is a book that I wrote that avoided all history, and uh, it's written from the posture of a 20-year-old who doesn't know anything more than what he knew when he was there. So, hmm. you know, that's Vietnam. And people ask me oftentimes, you know, what does Vietnam mean? Yeah. And the concept of that, of the title, means that those of us who went there came back transformed. You know, we may have left Vietnam, but Vietnam remained within us. And therefore, you know, we became Vietnam. Uh-huh. It's always inside of you, always inside of us. But, you know, it's a good thing, and it's in a good way. Um, so I, you know, <laughs> the war, the people, the country, it's what defines us as Vietnam veterans, and I, I believe that's a good thing. Huh. Now, you are finding people who disagree with you, I presume. I mean, for example, <laughs> um, there are people, you know, there are veterans um, committing suicide in, oh, in sure. droves. Uh, I mean, I know that this is there have been there's been battles since Vietnam, but still, sure. um, people have come across not as quite as um, undramatic uh, a homecoming as you have. You know, there are people who sure. have trouble finding jobs, and people with PTSD, and people. I mean, sure. you know, all of the um, problems that returning sure. veterans have. So have sure. you found some, um, this book has just come out, have you found some people, especially veterans, who disagree or have had a different experience? No, well, first of all, one does not contradict the other. You know, the book is a positive book uh, on, one, on one spectrum. But on the other spectrum, when you bring up PTSD, of course there are, there are many veterans who have PTSD, and rightfully so, many who have suffered, many who are still suffering. There are, you know, is a large incidence of suicide. That is all true. 
However, the largest portion of Vietnam veterans came home and had good, ordinary lives. They lived their lives, they had families, they had jobs, they had productive lives, and they don't have a voice. Everybody else has the voice, but they don't have a voice. Uh-huh. And all I say is, well, I don't even say it. I show that in Vietnam, good things are done, that there is a moral posture in this work that the readers will like, because despite the war and its impossible environment, these men were always trying to do the right thing, you, you know, mm-hmm. as best as they knew how. Uh, you know, the, the protagonist is both the hero and, a, and an anti-hero because he is stripped of any desire to play the hero role. But, you know, he's a hero nonetheless because what he does, because of what he does, you know, but really more importantly, what he does not do. You know, he's a humble hero. He's trying to do good work. And uh, I like to think that this combat book is written with a certain kind of tenderness of spirit, uh, but a tenderness without sentimentality. Again, doesn't negate that there's a suffering, and there's, there's suffering shown in my book. Uh, I just say that, you know, there's also a huge portion of Vietnam veteran population that have lived uh, very good lives, and we need to understand that that is also true. I see. Okay. And how has Vietnam changed you, transformed you? Well, I mean, it's made me uh, appreciate my life more greatly. Uh, it has transformed me as an artist because look at the kind of books that I've written. Uh, you know, it has allowed me to realize that uh, living well is very important and that to choose being an artist was very important for me in order to to uh, express myself artistically. So, you know, Vietnam really gave me a grounding and an appreciation for my life. And I came back to with the idea that, you know, there, was, there were guys that I knew that didn't get to come back. And it was very important for me to live a good life for those who were not able to mm. come back, mm, you know, mm. and, you know, it was in honor of that, of them, you know, that I should live a good life since they were not able to come back. So, uh-huh. it, you know, I, I thought that was important. Uh-huh. And, um... What, what, what are you thinking? I mean, what do you think now about? Um, well, I mean, I guess that's a, it's a big question. But let me go back to something else I wanted to ask you. Um, I know sure. that this is a, you call it Vietman a novel, but mm-hmm. um, I know from working with writers and and uh, of novels or television shows and movies that really a lot of the, it's really more biographical, autobiographical than these writers would like to believe or even realize, you know, because it's coming, whatever the characters are doing are really coming from your unconscious. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, all fiction, all fiction is autobiographical or semi-autobiographical in nature. Right. I mean, it has to be on some level because... If you're not grounded on the reality of who you are and how you have lived, 
um, you know, it, it doesn't ring true. Uh, so, but, but bottom line is Vietman is fiction. Uh, I believe that fiction gets closer to the truth about war than nonfiction. Uh, and, and, and it has this magical way of reaching into places where nonfiction can't go. I mean, quite frankly, fiction has a mystery to it that even I still don't understand after all these years. But mm-hmm. it has the capacity to capture the mystery of truth in ways that nonfiction can't touch. Well, yes, fiction... I mean, I understand that you um, have you have been trying to forget Vietnam, um, that there are some things in, that happened to Vietnam that you don't remember and that you don't necessarily want to remember. So perhaps some of these things, I mean, I would think, actually, that some of these things that you were writing about that you considered fiction could well be and are probably <laughs> things that, that you don't remember that really did happen or something very <laughs> similar to what you write about. Well, sure. I mean, you know, memory is a funny thing. And, you know, you can have five people having the same experience. Right. And all five of them will view it and remember it in a very different way. Maybe there are certain essential truths to run the, the through line of their memory. But, uh, you know, the seeing and the remembering of things is a very funny thing. Fiction kind of helps you with that because what happens is is that the synergy of the language uh, helps people read between the lines, and it also helps the reader bring their own paradigm to the work so that they're going to have another interpretation thrown on top of the work. This is a, a, a very deep dynamic in fiction, which makes it so so special. Uh, because fiction shows and nonfiction explains, the showing of it allows people to you know, bring themselves to it and expand on it in ways that even the writer never understands. I'm always amazed that when somebody calls me or writes me, that they start telling me what they thought of my book. And it's always something very different. Uh-huh, than what you were thinking. At the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It's really a beautiful, wonderful thing. In fact, I got this one person who, 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 who called me, and she's, you know, she, had, she read the book and loved it. And she says, you know, Danny, you wouldn't have liked me back in 69 because I was a peace stick. I was on the barricades on campus, <laughs> you know, uh, doing the anti-war thing and all of that. And, it says, and I said to her, I says, you know, that's not true. Uh, I, would, I would have not, wouldn't have disliked you because I understood that you and other voices of dissent were trying to stop the bloodshed. I believe that, you know, most of us were caught up in this event of the time and that, you know, fate carried each of us in a personal direction that had, you know, good intent as its foundation. And, and I reminded her, too, that I had been a corpsman, a medical guy, and that uh, Vietnam is seen through that lens. So, you know, she said to me, with some wonderful thing, like, she said, Danny, this book changed my mind because I realized that the, the, the guys in the military were also having a hard time with the war as well. And you made me see the other side of things. Uh-huh. Now, if that isn't a beautiful thing for a writer to hear, I don't know what is. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yes, absolutely. 
Um, well, I want to make sure I have time to give out the information where people can get it. Again, the name of the book is Viet Man. That's V-I-E-T space Man, M-A-N, a novel. And, um, and of course, you can get it at Amazon or bookstores um, or also a Square One. Um, wait a minute. <laughs> I have it. There is Square One Publishing. Square it's One also Publishing. It's also on Barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. And please tell people it's also available in the libraries. And uh-huh. if your local library doesn't have it, get them to bring it in because they love that book. Libraries are buying this book uh, very aggressively, and I'm very proud of that. Yes, absolutely. So um, thank you very much for sharing for sharing your story. And um, yes, I, I you know I, I would imagine that that was a a very difficult on one hand experience and a very cathartic experience on the other. And of course now um, everyone can can share that as well. Uh, it's it's you know this has been a um, going back in time a retrospective Woodstock and Vietnam contrasting in many ways but also the sensitivity of my two guests uh, has united them so thank you all for listening you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host dot com dot com I'm looking at your psychiatrist host dot com square one publishers dot com I wanted to make sure I said it correctly I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman (laughs) thank you all for listening see you next week Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.